0: I'm Timothy, I teach and write about apologetics, and Calvin and Hobbes is the greatest comic strip ever, and if you disagree, you're simply wrong. And I'm Garrick, and I judge the quality of an ice cream company by their flavor, cookies and cream. Well, how can a good God allow so much evil in the world? And why do some people seem to suffer so much more than other people do? According to a recent survey of college students, the problem of evil is the question about Christianity that college students find most difficult to answer. With us today to take a closer look at how to care for people when they're struggling with God's goodness in the midst of suffering, we have Dr. Eric Johnson, the director of the Gideon Institute of Christian Psychology and Counseling at Houston Baptist University. In the second half of the program, we'll talk about human freedom and divine sovereignty as we look at Stryper's 1986 album, To Hell With The Devil. If you want to dig deeper into apologetics after listening to this podcast, one great
1: place to start is a book written by Wayne House and Dennis Jowers entitled Reasons for Our Hope. For more information on this book and many others, go to
0: bhacademic.com. The book is Reasons for Our Hope from our friends at B&H Academic. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host, Garrick Bailey, and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll.
1: Derek here, and I'm here today with my co-host and friend, Timothy Paul Jones, and our other dear friend, Dr. Eric Johnson, author of Foundations for Soul Care and God
0: and Soul Care.
1: Welcome to Three Chords Apologetics podcast dr johnson how are you today
2: really good great to be here
0: well we've got to clear up one thing before we proceed there is another individual named eric johnson and just a couple of months ago i saw that person in concert playing the guitar and he is an amazing guitar player and what i have to find out is are you secretly him no no You are not. Okay. Well, I just wanted to make sure because if so, then this, this conversation was going to go in a completely different direction about the guitar playing and everything like that. Well, in a recent research study, two of my doctoral students examined what biblical and theological issues college students found most difficult to defend. And I really expected the top answer that they would give to what is difficult to defend about the Christian faith to be something about gender or about the creation of the world or the truthfulness of the Bible. But I was wrong. The number one question that they came up with that they said, I struggle to defend this truth about Christianity was the problem of evil. How can a good God allow evil in the world? And so what we see is that the problem of evil can be a roadblock for many people to believing in God and believing in the gospel. And so that's the problem that we'll be looking at today is the problem of evil. Now, we're not going to be focusing primarily on the logical problem of evil. We're going to be talking more about the pastoral problem, the personal problem of evil. But the logical problem of evil is one that we at least need to be aware of. Of and to think about. And this logical problem of evil is sometimes known as the Epicurean paradox or the Epicurean trilemma. And one of the clearest expressions of the Epicurean trilemma comes from the lips of the supervillain Lex Luthor in a conversation with Superman near the end of the movie Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice.
2: Boy, do we have problems up here. <laughs>
1: Uh, the, the problem of...
2: of evil in the
1: world.
0: Uh, the problem of absolute virtue. I'll take you in without breaking you, which is more than you deserve.
2: The problem of you on top of everything else. You above all.
1: Ah, because that's what God is. Horace, Apollo, Jehovah, Cal el Clark, Joseph, Kent. See, what we call God depends upon our tribe, Clark, Joe. Because God is tribal. God takes sides. No man in the sky intervened when I was a boy to deliver me from daddy's fists and abominations. Mm. I figured out way back. If God is all-powerful, he cannot be
2: all-good. And if he is all-good, then he cannot be all-powerful. And neither can
1: you be. So here is a quick summary of the logical problem of evil. The premises. well, listen, we see that God exists... He's omnipotent, he's omniscient, right? He's all-powerful, he knows all, and he's perfectly good, right? That's premise number one. Premise number two states, evil exists, there's evil. And so the logical problem is then stated that one and two, the first premise and the second premise, are logically inconsistent, that it is logically impossible that both one and two are true. And so the question is, is, does the Epicurean Trilemma actually present
0: a logical problem? Well, one of the things we have to recognize is that in terms of this logical problem of evil, is that really Alvin Plantinga's book, God, Freedom, and Evil, it really dealt a death blow to the problem of evil. What he really showed is that there is no logical contradiction between these things, that it is not illogical to say that God exists And that evil exists if God is both good and God is all powerful, because as you've said, that's what the issue is. It's that God supposedly can't be good and all powerful if evil exists. And what Plantinga shows is that those things are actually not logically incompatible they really aren't they could only be logically
1: incompatible if there were a third premise or a third truth or a necessary truth right it would have to be the case that an all powerful a all-knowing and a perfectly good being would have no good reason for allowing evil but it just isn't
0: the case that you can show that to be
1: necessarily true and so what
0: Plantinga really does, he puts the non-believer, the person who rejects God on the basis of this, he puts them on the defensive by saying, "Look, if there is any conceivable reason why a good and all-powerful God would allow evil, then there is no logical contradiction. But what we're going to be exploring today is not so much the logical side of this. It's the pastoral. It's the personal side of this. But I want you to make sure you understand right off the bat that we're not talking about something that is a true logical contradiction. Many people think that it is, but the Epicurean Trilemma is not a logical contradiction. But even with Plantinga showing that it's not a logical contradiction, Here's the fact that we still deal with people in our churches and in our own lives who feel abandoned by God in times of suffering. And so what I want us to explore today is this question of how can a good God allow evil in my life? How can a good God allow suffering in my life? And especially, why does it seem like in so many cases that some people suffer more than others. Why is it disproportionate? And so that's what I want us to spend some time exploring in today's episode. So Dr. Johnson, what I'd like you to do first is just to to share with our listeners from your own experience in your own life, what are the types of things that are helpful for us to express to somebody when they say to us, why am I suffering? How can a good God allow suffering in my life? What should we do in response to that person?
2: Well, I want to distinguish pretty sharply between the truths that we have in our overall theological framework from the things that we might share in a particularly difficult time in someone's life. I believe the Bible shows us that that God is, in fact, all-powerful, and he could have created a world where there was no evil. So at the end of the day, I believe Romans 8.28, you know, he does work all things together for good. And that good is, you know, defined by him. He's the essence of goodness. So that for me is a, a bedrock. And in the long run of one's life, it's extremely good news to know that a good God, whatever happens in my life, a good God is still good in spite of the existence of things that are contrary to his desires, contrary to his nature but really pivotal to add is that that doesn't mean that we can understand it. There's a lot of things in life and in the Bible and in science even that we can't reconcile, that we can't put together with our limited resources. So I kind of assume both things at all times, that God's in charge, he's a good God, and I'm not going to necessarily be able to solve this problem. That's not going to satisfy a lot of people, but that's, for me, just kind of a starting point. The more important part of your question that you're asking is, then what do we say? And I really would want to argue that we don't say much in the midst of crisis in the midst of an awareness of maybe something that happened in the past that a person wasn't was kind of in denial of and then it kind of emerges in in adulthood into their awareness or something just horrific happens to somebody they get raped or a family member is beaten up inexplicably out of nowhere when this kind of thing happens i think what we want to do is we want to manifest a heart of compassion, and be with the person suffering. I don't think that we can in that moment, it's a crisis moment, I don't think we can be in any way effective by coming up with some platitudes or drawing on our ultimate theological principles to be of help. They're suffering, they're in anguish, and Christ himself was in anguish. One of the most relevant passages in in the whole Bible is Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's contemplating experiencing hell the next day. And he prays a prayer we cannot fathom, where he says, if possible, please take this from me. But such was the anguish of Christ. That, that was his desire. That was his wish. But he ends up surrendering himself in a fresh way to his father who he trusted but in between those two comments is mystery and unfathomable depth that the son of god bore we might say and wrestled with and and ultimately surrendered so i see our our goal is to walk with people through the crisis through the emotional upheaval of of whatever it is that they're struggling with and at some point down the road perhaps we might be able to help them to make sense of it in light of their faith. and There there are wonderful resources. Maybe we could talk about them before we're done. But for me, it's really important to distinguish these two phases of the, of the answer, as it were.
1: As a follow-up, do you think it's a stretch to say that that is a, a lesson that we could Glean from the account of Job and how his friends, so-called friends, those around him react or counsel or interact with him during a crisis and what ultimately God says to them afterwards. Yeah,
2: what a beautiful, profound and great book that God put in his Bible for us. Because there's so many things that are helpful to the sufferer and to those who help sufferers. The irony that we are all aware of is that they did wait for a while. And there was, you know, there's kind of a basic intuition. We all know, you know, got to be careful here. But they weren't careful enough and then thought that their theological answers would fix the problem. So, yeah, the book of Job is incredibly helpful here. What I would want to add is that we can't, I don't think we can understand the book of Job fully apart from the cross. A lot of times people kind of, I think, abstract the Old Testament from, from Christ. I think that's a mistake. I think everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled in a deep sense, deeper than we'll ever know fully. In Christ is life, death, resurrection. And I think what we find in the book of Job is sort of an anticipation of the problem of evil that Christ faced. <laughs> Can we put it that way? He confronted the problem evil fully as God himself. And I see him then on the cross taking the place of Job as he took the place of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, and wrestled as God with the evil of sin that leads to destruction. So
0: in what sense do you think we can say that God understands our suffering?
2: All Christians agree that God is omniscient. Another maybe dimension that has been less well explored is God feels all things. Jim Spiegel, Christian philosopher, said once, I read, that God is also omnipathic. And so at least in that deep sense that he knows everyone and the pain, therefore, that everyone goes through, he's infinite and he's able to bear that suffering from that kind of a second-person perspective. But when, yeah, you, when you point us to the cross, then we're talking about the Son of God who became a human and entered into the suffering of humanity from a first-person perspective. And I don't think anyone who thinks much about this, I think, has to concede that God has suffered in the person of Jesus Christ and therefore knows what it's like to be rejected and to be in anguish. Well, Let's look
0: specifically at the task of apologetics and the problem of evil. Just at the level of witnessing to somebody, of sharing the gospel with somebody, what would you say that we should say, perhaps, if somebody says to us, I can't believe in God because I can't believe a good God would allow evil? And that's the objection they give to the gospel that we are presenting. What are some of the ways that you can think of that we might respond to that type of individual?
2: I'm going to take two steps because I don't think that, I'm, you know, that, that that's a good time to enter into an argument about what the Bible teaches or to try and give some sort of a logical exposition of it from a Christian standpoint. I could be wrong on that, and I'd be, you know, there may be a particular situation where the person's actually genuinely seeking to get more information, and then I'd go down that road. But I love the mystery. And I'm going to just say I I don't understand a lot of things, and this is one of the hardest for me. Mm -hmm. I just don't know why some of these things happen in life.
0: One of the things I found to be helpful in that as well is we admit mystery, but sometimes I'll also ask the person, when did you start feeling this way about God? Mm -hmm. And what that almost always reveals, and in fact every instance I can think of— They have been hurt deeply somehow, and they are responding out of their own pain. And I think then that gives us an opportunity sometimes to point them to the cross. Because once I have their pain in its specificity, then I can say, you know what? For all those who have trusted in Christ and all those who ever will trust in Christ, that pain falls on Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. And I don't understand how it fits together mystery. Mm. But this is, I believe, the truth about who God is and about mm. who Jesus is and how he relates to that pain you have just described mm. to That's me. That's great.
2: In dealing with these kinds of problems in, in counseling, I have said many, many times that we need to hang out close to the cross. Mm. We need to walk around that cross. We need to just stay there and look up and seek to receive, Lord, what do you want me to understand? Because there is such a deep sense that the cross takes so many mysteries and doesn't explain them all, but presents them to us as compatible with the love and goodness of a God who cares for us enough to rescue us from our sin and ultimately from our suffering.
1: Dr. Johnson, you mentioned resources earlier, resources to walk through, to think through some of these
2: things that we've talked about. Could you share some of those for our listeners? Mm, I'd love to. There's so many nowadays. There's been such good things written by very thoughtful Christians. But the two favorites that immediately popped into my head are a very serious, substantial book, I think 350 to 400 pages by Eleanor Stump, the great Christian philosopher, Wandering in Darkness. And I've gone through that a couple times I'm, it's time for me to get back into it. There's one area where her Catholicism, I think, is in error about Paul's understanding of justification by faith, but everything else in that book, in my recollection, is a goldmine of reflecting very deeply on how God uses suffering for good in, the, in character formation. That's the end goal, but how she gets there is so so thoughtful and beautiful and helpful. There's a discussion of love that's changed my life, and she's She's got four narratives that she explores in the middle of the book that are masterful. One of them, a the book of Job, You know, Samson, the suffering that he causes upon himself, Abraham's suffering, the longings that are unsatisfied, and then most powerfully is the suffering of Mary at the death of her brother, Lazarus, and Christ showing up. Such a treasure of a book. But another easier read, but is equally profound is a book called A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer. I think he's an English professor at Whitworth. And he describes his own suffering, the loss of his wife, mother, and a daughter as a result of a traffic accident. He's driving, as I recall, but his car is hidden and he loses three of the most important females in his life. And his exploration of that is very honest and transparent and yet very faithful in the deepest sense of that word.
1: And so we move on to this important discussion, which we could continue for for some time now, onto a less important but very fun discussion. It's a discussion that divides families. It breaks fellowship at tables. It causes wars and outbreaks of violence in the form of Loud yelling and finger pointing at times. It is what we like to call it here at Three Chords in the Truth, the Infinity Gauntlet.
0: And so, once again, Garrett has bravely reached within that very Infinity Gauntlet, which Thanos wore and thereby wiped out half of the population of the universe, and has withdrawn a question. And the question for this week is really difficult, very broad and extremely difficult.
1: Which one is better and why? Star Wars or Lord of the Rings? (laughs) We're not even asking who's going to win in a battle. It's just, hey, here are these two amazing
0: things. Well, choose between them. Oh, that is difficult because as everyone who knows me well knows, I'm a big Star Wars fan in a major way. I am a Star Wars fan. And yet right now with my children, I am reading aloud Lord of the Rings. Mm. And as I read Lord of the Rings out loud with my children, I recognize the depth and the beauty and the intricacy and where it just makes you kind of choke up sometimes yep. the sheer beauty of of the Lord of the Rings. And I would have to say, and especially as we've talked about before in its treatment and awareness of evil, of real evil in that, Lord of the Rings has a depth and a richness That is really, really difficult to parallel or to match. And so even with the fact that my office is decorated in Star Wars, even with the fact that my pajamas are all Star Wars, I have to say, in spite of all of that, TMI. what do you think, epic guitarist Eric Johnson?
2: (laughs) Wow! Yeah, I, my sympathies lie with the Lord of the Rings too. The, the character development that you see throughout—I think, yeah—it's got a depth. There's nothing comparable to Gollum as far as a mm-hmm. psychological portrayal of the, the, you know, the twisted nature of mm-hmm. the of the human soul. Mm-hmm. So I think we got to go with Lord of the Rings too. Yeah, I
0: think so. rock and roll it's one of the greatest human inventions and one of the supreme expressions of god's common grace the way we see it the golden age of this invention began with bob dylan and ended with pearl jam and that is why each week in the second half of the program garrick and i review one of our favorite songs and go digging for truth in classic rock I'm Garrett from the 1980s and I am Timothy from the 1970s and the topic for today is almost as controversial as the questions that come from the infinity gauntlet and the question for today is what about free will dun, what dun, about dun, we dun. Free will? what do we do with free will and how do we deal with that and for christians This is actually two separate questions. So one of the two questions has to do with God's sovereignty over human choices. To what degree does God predetermine what happens? Could we have actually chosen something other and different than what we did? Was it possible that we could have chosen another question, pulled another one out of the infinity gauntlet? Or did God predetermine which question we would pull from the infinity gauntlet? And that's an important question. Not so much about the infinity gauntlet, but that's an important question about divine sovereignty and human choices. Okay, that's an important question, but it's actually a question for season two. We are going to look at that question in season two when we talk about free will by Rush. We're going to have a, a, a session on Rush and talk about Rush and the song Free Will. And so we'll get to that question then.
1: Yeah, and that Friends was called a teaser. And while that context is typically the place that this question of free will comes up when it has to do with God's will and human will? It's not the question that we're looking at today. The aspect of free will that we're looking at today is a different question, and it's a question of divine sovereignty and human freedom as it relates to salvation. In other words, if you're a believer in Jesus, to what degree do you freely choose Jesus? And what did God do to bring you to faith if god was the one who accomplished your salvation did you really
0: have a choice in that at all and so the song that we'll be exploring today to examine this question is the song free by striper from their 1986 album to hell with the devil
1: theologians of rock the striped theologians of striper (laughs) wait Did you say 1986? I did say 1986. As in the same 1986 in which Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi released? Or Sammy Hagar's first album with Van Halen came out? Or the movie Top Gun? Or Crocodile Dundee? Iron Eagle, one of my personal favorites? Or the original and best Transformers movie before Michael Bay ruined them all? Or the classic Stand By Me,
0: Hoosiers? The list could go on. It could go on and on forever. This is that very same 1986 Mm. in this universe, in this dimension. Earth 616, this dimension right here, and all of that, and... Ferris Bueller's Day Off as well, and Striper's hit album To Hell With The Devil. All of those things in that great and wonderful year of 1986.
1: Listen, for those of you that have never heard of or have ever seen Striper, here's some homework for you. Don't do it now, especially if you're driving while listening to this, but as soon as possible, or if you're in a place where you can hit pause and do this on your mobile device, you need to go look at a picture of these gentlemen, especially the night 1986 version of Striper. And what you will see is a group of four gentlemen who in the picture don't always look like gentlemen, but we'll get to that later, decked out both in album and in their musical instruments and in their uniforms, outfits, getups, whatever you would like to call them, who are decked out in yellow and black. Stripes. And it is something to behold. And when Timothy asked me, so when you look at Striper, like what comes to mind? Being a child of the 80s who was really coming into, you know, my love of music in the 90s, actually, right? Late 80s, early 90s, I was reminded of another yellow and black phenomenon of the time, which was the music video, which I think released or got huge in 1993 of Blind Melon, the band Blind Melon, and a song called No Rain, in which this random young girl is just dancing around and going all over the place in this bumblebee costume. So the first time I ever saw black and yellow striped striper, I thought, oh, these are the parents. This is the parents of the bumblebee girl.
0: analogy I can think of is a few years ago, as you know, I do not watch football, either the European perversion that is called football or American football that is also known as gridiron in other parts of the world. But I happened to turn on a television in a hotel room and the Pittsburgh Steelers were playing and they were playing in these awful yellow and black striped hideous outfits. And I thought this is a massive striper advertisement. Here we go. Striper came out of the same Southern California music scene that shaped bands like Van Halen and Poison and bands like that. The core of the band was Robert Sweet on drums and Michael Sweet on vocals and guitar. And both Robert and Michael Sweet became Christians as teenagers, then walked away from what they had professed at that time, got involved in the music and partying scene along the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles and formed a band called Rock's Regime. And it's Rocks R O X X. Yeah. yeah, Because as with many things like rat R A T T and other things in the eighties, it became cooler when it had two letters, especially if the letter was X at that point. Two consonants. Always is more metal like. It is. And or two exclamation points. Think about Everybody Wants Some by Van Halen! Exclamation point, exclamation point.
1: Or in the case of Motley Crue,
0: two umlauts. Two umlauts, which we have no clue how to. Mootley Crue. We don't know how to. Crue. <laughs> we don't know how to pronounce those two no. umlauts on the letters in Motley Crue. No. But uh, Rock's regime jammed with musicians like Cece Deville, who became eventually the guitarist for Poison and the keyboardist in Rock's. Regime was a man named Kenny Metcalf. He played keyboards with Rock's regime and he was a Christian and urged Robert and Michael Sweet to leave behind their party lifestyle and to reclaim their faith in Christ, which they did. Now, I looked up Kenny Metcalf to see whatever happened to him. He is now a professional Elton John impersonator. I don't know what to say about that. Why not? I just don't know what to say about that. Because he but can. He can, apparently, and it has something to do with the problem of evil That's as well. right. <laughs> So, Striper, they developed this image that was different from anything really before. They had the music and the makeup that often went with those bands on the Sunset Strip at that time, and they changed their name from Rock's Regime to Striper for two reasons. The first one was it rhymed with hyper, and then the second one was Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says, by his stripes we are healed, and they started- Wait, Wait,
1: but that's not, the stripes isn't- spelled with a Y. That's right.
0: They did that either because it rhymed with hyper or for another reason that seems to come up is some people kept saying stripper instead of striper and thought that the name of the band was stripper rather than striper. And so they started wearing the stripes and they put all of this front and center to make sure that they weren't called stripper because that's not a great (laughs) name for a Christian (laughs) band. That's probably a wise (laughs) move. And later on, they created this backronym, this kind of retrofitted acronym. They said, STRIPER stands for salvation through redemption, yielding peace, encouragement, and righteousness. Now listen, had to try really hard to right. get that. Yeah,
1: we don't, we obviously don't, laugh at what it means and represents, (laughs) but just the thought of this acronym, it's hard to make it through that with a straight face.
0: (laughs) And Striper was known for throwing out New Testaments during their concerts. Mm. Early on, they just had a Striper sticker on each one of them. And later on, they developed these custom NIV New Testaments that are Striper logoed. (gasps) And uh, then came 1986, and Michael Sweet's voice was at its height. And we mean that in a quite literal yes. sense. Because Michael Sweet has this distinct, shrill voice. It's kind of like Ronnie James Dio, but more shrill. And he just absolutely belts it out high on this particular album. Oh. But we're going to forgive him a little bit because, and here's why, guess who his favorite pop rock vocalist is. I don't know, Timothy. Tell us. Our friend, our paragon, our hero vocally, our man, Steve Perry.
3: Don't stop believing. Hold on to that
0: Streetlight well, for me, Striper was huge. I mean, Striper was, for me, something that just... It rocked my world a little bit because by this point, still the only Christian music I knew in 1986 was hymns, Southern gospel, mm. and sappy, soft, contemporary Christian music. You mean like honestly? That. But, but I'm worse. kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> if that had been by itself, I would not have liked yes. Striper if that had been by itself. And I was just in this total state of rebellion against my parents, rebellion against God, rebellion against church at this point. And in the churches I was in, as we've talked about, following Jesus meant wearing certain clothes, having your hair cut certain ways, using only the King James Version, and supremely don't listen to to rock music. And yeah. the entrance of Striper into my world, it just kind of piqued the question of for me of could it be that there are ways to follow Jesus that don't look like what I'm hearing each week at church? And so because of that, Striper just intrigued me When they first came on the radio, even in this time of rebellion in my life, they really just grabbed my attention and made me wonder what if there's another way to love Jesus than what I'm being taught.
1: Yeah. Can I ask an off script question? What would the people in that tradition that that you came up in, what would their reaction be
0: to a christian band with this medium of heavy metal yeah i'm pretty sure they would have seen it and in fact i can tell you they did see it as even worse than secular rock like sacrilegious blasphemous like a capitulation to satanic forces exactly like it was really a giving in that these people were actually satanic just like the rock bands but they were trying to use christian lyrics
1: So let's look at Striper's theology, especially the issue of free will, which comes out in this song that we're looking at. So one of the most popular videos on MTV in 1986 was Free by Striper. I know, shocker, but it was. And, and some of the lyrics go as such. You're free. Free to do what you want to. Choose your own destiny. Free to open up and believe. Free to simply ask and receive. There's no better time than now. You've got the right to choose. So do they get this right?
0: <laughs> Is that true? Well, it really depends on what you mean by the word free. Mm. In philosophy, as we often talk about, free will means the actual possibility of having made some other choice than the one you made. And when we turn to Jesus, there is, we have to recognize some measure of human freedom involved in that choice. But it's also very, very clear from the Bible that salvation is not our doing. It's not our work. It's not our doing. It says in Ephesians chapter two, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this, this whole reality of salvation is not from yourself. It is God's gift, not from works, not from any human doing so that no one can boast. And so the question we have to wrestle with in this is what sort of freedom do we actually have as human beings? Mm -hmm. When we choose Jesus, do we really have the right, as Striper says, to choose our own destiny. Now, here's the thing. This is not some sort of new question that's come up just recently in Christianity. (laughs) This is something that Christians have wrestled with all the way through the history of Christianity. This dilemma has been part of the discussion of Christian faith and Christian theology all the way from the very beginnings of Christian faith and Christian theology.
1: Yeah, and if we look throughout church history, we can identify at least five different major perspectives on how human freedom and God's sovereignty in salvation fit together. Two of these perspectives have been declared heretical by every group that calls itself a Christian, meaning that not only do they fly in the face of and disagree with Christian orthodox belief that has been held by everyone, everywhere, for all time, not only do they disagree with that, but they do so knowingly, stubbornly, intentionally, with a closed fist. Those who hold this belief in the face of correction say, I disagree with you, and I'm going to take my ball and go home. So, The two beliefs or perspectives that we have deemed as heretical in the history of the church are that of Pelagianism and creatively called Semi-Pelagianism. So one perspective rejected by those of us who call ourselves Protestants, but it's characteristic of Roman Catholicism, would be what we'd call Semi-Augustinianism, and then there are two viewpoints that we consider orthodox and that we either hold or or have close friends who hold and that would be the view called Arminianism or the Arminian view and the
0: Augustinian or reformed perspective. So let's first look at each one of these and then compare them to what Striper says in free. Okay, so that's (laughs) what we're going to do. So we're going to look at each of these five. So there's five different perspectives. Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, both of those are heretical. Mm -hmm. There's one called semi-Augustinianism that is characteristic of Roman Catholicism, certain aspects of it that Protestants reject. And then there's two viewpoints that are Orthodox, Arminianism and Augustinianism or Reformed theology. So let's start with the heresies, Pelagianism (laughs) and semi-Pelagianism. Pelagianism.
1: Yeah, Pelagianism, not surprisingly, named after a man called Pelagius. May have been a British monk way back in the 5th century. And so Pelagius comes from Rome to North Africa in the year 410. And he was appalled at the scene, the Christian scene that he saw in Rome the Roman church, by its low morals, its lax piety. And Pelagius blames this situation on a guy by the name of Augustine, on his teaching about God's grace, which Augustine had been teaching that Christians are saved completely, entirely, wholly by grace and not because of any thing that we do no action that we perform or no merit that we possess. And so Pelagius thinks that this, this doesn't work. This has these these results, this lax piety results that he's seeing in Rome and he begins to teach that human beings are completely free to do good and they are completely capable of doing good, that all humans are not born with some disorder or corruption or some, something isn't inherently wrong with us in light of Genesis 3, right? And so when someone chooses to be good, as they are able and capable of doing, God gives that person grace so that they can do more good. And that's Pelagius's view of how the will plays
0: into salvation. And according to Pelagius, basically, the more good works you do, the more grace God gives you. And the way I think of it, it's like a video game. And the better you play and the more powers and the abilities you unlock, you move forward yes. in that. And in Pelagius' idea, if you keep putting enough quarters in the grace arcade and keep playing the game, then eventually you can get to perfection. You can actually get To the end of the game, absolutely perfect. And another way of thinking of it, for Pelagius, grace is like a stairway to heaven. It supports you every step you take, but the first step and the effort are yours every step of the way.
3: So
1: here's the second heresy that we mentioned, semi Pelagianism. So we're in the 5th century still, a monk by the name of John Cassian. What is it with the monks and their creating heresy? Anyways, the human will in John Cassian's mind is free to initiate salvation. God may help you, but you have the capacity to take that first step to initiate your salvation by choosing Jesus. Now, once you take That first step, then God takes over and and does the
0: rest. So that's where he differs from the classical Pelagianism. Yeah, and semi-Pelagianism, this form of it, it originates with some monks, again, in Gaul in the 5th century, John Cassian among them. But the term semi-Pelagianism is actually a little bit anachronistic, because that actual term doesn't come about till the end of the 16th century. They were called in their own day either the Massilians, because they were near the French village of Marseille, or, and this is my favorite term for them, they were called people who had the residue of Pelagius. (laughs) Now, that would be a great... Great name for a band, Pelagian yes. Residue, and that's what they were called as Pelagian Residue. And so the idea, of course, of semi-Pelagianism is that the beginning of faith depends on your own power of of free will, but then continuing it, keeping it going afterwards, that depends on God. God yeah. actually does it from that point. And so grace is less like a stairway to heaven and more kind of like an escalator. Yes. That you take that first step, you get on the escalator, but then God's power carries you on the rest of the way. Yeah. Wow.
1: So the Synod of Orange rejected Pelagianism and semi Pelagianism. <laughs> But they only partly followed Augustine. And so the third way that Christians have seen grace and free will is the decision, the position that we see come out of the the Synod of Orange, what we have called semi-Augustinianism. In semi-Augustinianism, God's grace comes before. It precedes any good works or human choices. But this grace, it comes through the sacraments of the church, particularly through
0: baptism. Yeah, that's what we find in the Synod of Orange, that they reject semi-Pelagianism, they reject Pelagianism, but then beginning with about canon 13 of the proceedings of the Synod of Orange, it becomes clear that the grace they're describing isn't imparted by the work of God, by the sole and sovereign work of God, but rather grace is infused through the works of the church, specifically through baptism. And so according to the Synod of Orange baptism, it places faith and salvation within the grasp of Every baptized person in some sense, according to the Synod of Orange, baptism frees you to be saved. And so semi-Augustinianism doesn't see it like a stairway to heaven. Mm -hmm. It doesn't see us like the escalator that we talked about. Rather, it has a sort of like an elevator. Imagine a baby in a stroller, and mm. the church rolls you into the elevator, but then once the church rolls you into that elevator, you're free to push whatever button you choose. This grace for our salvation comes through the church, and the
1: way that it comes through the church is by these means of, of nature that grace is given through. That these natural elements, these elements of the world, whether it's water or bread or or wine are able to serve as a channel, a way to dispense, to give grace to those who who come, those who partake, those who
0: are a, an active part of Christ's body, the church on earth. And so that's kind of this semi-Augustinian view. It's It draws some things from Augustine, but it also adds a lot to Augustine, we might say.
1: Yeah. So let's take a, a look at the two what we've called, you know, the Orthodox perspectives on free will and salvation. The views that we have called Arminianism and Augustinianism, or the Reformed
0: view. Now, Arminian, what what that means <laughs> yes. is people that live east of Turkey, right? Yeah, the, yeah, are no, the Armenians? No. That, that's that's what that no, means. No,
1: This is the Arminians, those I would say those following the teachings of though that's not even really the case. Those who follow the teaching of Jacob Arminius. Okay, right? so, so
0: Armenians and Arminians are different things, right? Yes. They don't have to be. You can
1: be an Armenian Armenian,
0: but you can also be an Armenian Arminian. Yeah. You could <laughs> yes. be Yes, you could be both of those. All of the above. at the same time. So that's we right. say this because so many times I oh. see people writing and they mean to say Armenian and they say Armenian, please stop yeah. being so mean to our Armenian friends because they're mostly good people over yeah. there. I try yeah.
1: to give the benefit of the doubt and I, I tend to blame it on autocorrect. That's, <laughs> but it shows up in a lot of theology papers. We grade
0: theology papers a lot between the two of us and we see this error a lot. Please Please, children, fix this error. Don't call yes. Armenians, Armenians, and your, your grades will go up if yeah. you do that. Well, near the end of the 16th century, there was a new debate about grace that developed in Holland. And at the University of Leiden, there was a man named Jacob Hermansoon who wanted to rework certain sections in the Reformed Confessions of Faith about salvation. And Jacob Hermansoon, he rejected the belief that he been taught about exactly how God single-handedly saves people. And after Jacob Hermanson died, his followers developed this statement called the Remonstrance. And in it, there were five different points that they rejected about the Reformed or Augustinian view of free will and salvation. Now, if you know about Jacob Hermanson, you probably don't know him as Hermanson. You've confused so many people I I know. And I think it's a good thing because we would not want to call people Hermansunians, but at least then they wouldn't be confused with Armenians. Oh, you know how we talk
1: about classic Armenians, like those folks we feel like truly get it right and get it close to Arminius? Maybe we should call those people Hermansunians. Hermansunians.
0: There we go. We've just invented something. We have invented something amazing and confusing because, folks, uh, this is the time to help you understand here. Arminius is the Latin form of Hermansoon. and so his name was Jacob Hermansoon, but you know him as Arminius, and his followers did indeed become known as Arminians, which is good, as I said, because we don't want to call people Hermansunians because then somebody says, God bless you, or <laughs> gesundheit, whenever we say <laughs> Hermansunian. Yeah. And so according to Hermansonianism, or as we shall now call it, Arminianism, Whenever somebody hears the gospel and hears and understands the gospel of Jesus Christ, that person experiences and receives what we might call prevenient grace or preparatory grace. And at that point, When they hear and understand the gospel, God begins to regenerate that person or God begins to bring that person spiritually to life. And so that initiation of salvation is not in that person's works, is not in that person's will. It is rather in the will and the work of God that he does whenever a person hears and understands the gospel. And according to Arminians, if a sinner chooses not to to resist God's efforts, Prevenient grace produces faith, and that becomes saving grace. And so to keep our analogy going that we've taken way too far (laughs) already, grace in this becomes like an elevator. God rolls you into the elevator, and as long as you don't tell him to stop, he presses the button that takes you to salvation and eternal life. And so this really, really became popular among certain segments of the Dutch population and the Dutch Reformed churches in the early 17th century, and it led to what we know as the Synod of Dort, where they stated in response to this remonstrance five points of Reformed theology in response to that. Sometimes those get summarized as a tulip. We will talk about that in some other episode, but a tulip is a terrible way to summarize the five points from the Synod of Dort. It's like God plugs in your
1: dead cell phone right he plugs it in he begins the charging the current of grace is flowing but you have the capacity to unplug this phone and you can stop the charging you can cut off the current of grace if you so choose
0: Exactly. And because it begins with God and because it begins with God's work and he takes the initiatory step, he's the one who does this. This view is orthodox. Now, I actually disagree with this view, Mm -hmm. but it is an orthodox view. Not only Jacob Arminius held this view, but John and Charles Wesley held this view. In contemporary times, I can think of a couple of theologians I really respect, Scott McKnight and Fred Sanders, who are Arminians in the best possible sense Mm -hmm. of the term we can lock arms with an arminian and do gospel work together this is an orthodox view a true and authentic arminianism is orthodox and it exalts the initiation the primacy of god in salvation Now, the difficulty I do have with Arminianism is I don't see anything like this initiating of regeneration, and then you can say no and stop it in Scripture. That is simply not clear to me in Scripture, and that simple fact of in Ephesians 2, God made you alive without qualification, without any sort of other thing. If God makes you alive, if you allow him to continue this— in Ephesians chapter 2, it simply says God made you alive because of his great love. And I don't see what Arminianism teaches clearly enough in Scripture for me to be able to embrace Arminianism. Yeah, we've talked about this. It seems that to
1: read Scripture in light of Arminian view on this topic, it seems that you have to read texts that I believe are about sanctification, about growing in holiness, and how that works in relationship to God and his sovereignty, it seems that you have to read those as texts about our regeneration. I'm not convinced. So, that's where I land. Not that you asked. But the last perspective and I've already, you know, I've already showed our hand here is the perspective of reformed theology or the view that we have called the Augustinian view which unsurprisingly is named after a guy by the name of Augustine. Now, reformed theology does not deny human freedom. Can we just go ahead and get that out of the way? It doesn't deny our human freedom. It doesn't deny a capacity to choose. Reformed theologians, Augustine himself, as we have both read quotes, was not anti-free will. All right? According to the Synod of Dort, which we've mentioned already in 1618, they conclude that God does not deal with people as if they were blocks or stones, nor does the Spirit of God coerce a reluctant will by force. The problem is that we... We don't desire God, that our will, our our free choosing, in our free choosing, we will never choose God
0: under our own power. And that's the key thing in Reformed or Augustinian thinking is that Adam's fall has so corrupted us that we do not desire to turn to God. That's Romans chapter one. It makes it clear every human being knows there is a God. That's not the issue. The issue is we don't want the God who's there. We don't want that deity. We don't want to submit to him. It says in Romans chapter three, verse 10, there is no one who seeks God. The only way that we will desire God is if God makes us spiritually alive, changes our will, changes our intellect such that we have new and different desires. And when God does that, We freely and joyously turn to Jesus and we run to Him. We choose Him because of what God has enacted in us. By his will. That's one of the points that Luther makes in his book on the bondage of the will. Since our wills are enslaved to sin, the point he's making is none of us will ever choose to pursue God's way of righteousness apart from God's work of grace. And the pastors who gathered together at the Synod of Dort in 1618, they put it this way if the marvelous maker of every good thing were not dealing with us, we would have no hope of getting up from our fall by our free choice. By which we plunged ourselves into ruin while still standing upright. What we see there is that God does not drag people kicking and screaming into heaven. That's a caricature of reformed theology. Rather, God changes our desires so that we freely and joyously turn to him. And so in Augustinian theology, the point is we're dead in sin. We don't desire God. We don't want him. Him And therefore, God has to sovereignly change our will. In Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, you got humanity looking for a stairway or an escalator, and God helps you after you get on there or empowers you to get on there. In semi-Augustinianism, it's basically baptism makes you able to choose the right way. In Arminianism, God helps you onto the elevator, and then you can tell him whether you want to go to the floor he has planned for you to go. But in This Augustinian reformed view, we aren't looking for the truth at all. Rather, we are zombies meandering around infecting other people. And God raises us from our living death to a true and authentic life. And when he does, then we see the glories of Jesus, and we desire them, we want them, we run to them. But until God does that, we are, as one Puritan writer put it, dead in iniquities, having no eyes to see thee, speaking to God, no eyes to see thee, no ears to hear thee, no taste to relish thy joys, and no intelligence to know thee. If I
1: can include my obligatory Bavink quote that I try to fit in every episode. In speaking to that caricature of Reformed theology that you mentioned, bovink says, and he's as Reformed as they come, he says, Humans have not, as a result of sin, lost their will and their increated freedom. The will, in virtue of its nature, it rules out all coercion, and it can only will freely. He sounds very Augustinian there. He says, what humans have lost is the free inclination of the will toward the good. They now no longer want to do good. They now voluntarily, by a natural inclination, do evil. The inclination, the direction of the will has changed. And he would say that in God rescuing us from our sin, that he doesn't destroy our free will to do so but instead he restores it to its proper function that is to love and obey him
0: I don't think Striper is there talking Mm -hmm. about this mere capacity to choose. They're talking about us actually having the power within ourselves and the capacity to desire the good and to make that initiating step towards salvation, which let's admit it, that's semi-Pelagianism. If you really listen to what they are saying in the song Free, it is semi-Pelagianism. Your faith begins with you, and then God responds to what you have chosen. And unfortunately, I think that semi-Pelagianism is probably the dominant de facto theology of most American evangelicals.
1: Yeah. I want to be fair to both Striper and... Everyone else out there, in that it probably is kind of the default. I do believe that if we got to sit down and have this discussion and the analogy and and kind of walk through this with most folks, that perhaps semi Pelagianism might not be where they land when they hear the options. But certainly, as we have it in the song with those words, that's precisely what it is. And that is precisely how our society does seem to work. It is be all you can be, right? It is pull yourself up by your bootstraps and choose to fill in the blank, right? It is a, we are empowered. We have been created with whatever it is inside of us that gives us the ability to choose to make a decision and to follow that decision through and to make your own destiny right you you are the creator of your own destiny <laughs>
0: Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future or in picking up Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com Three Chords and the Truth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth.